folks who are joining us, there's a whole group of empty seats here, and I don't believe there's like gum on them or anything, so um, you're welcome to come on up front. No booby traps here. It is good to have you with us. It is good, too, to have the D.C. Labor Chorus with us, as always. <laughs> oh, I'm not the only one who thinks that, I see. <laughs> we are so pleased to be able to host the D.C. Labor Chorus for their rehearsals in our space, and we are very grateful that they then will sometimes come and sing for us and with us. It is a good, um, a good time to have you with us right now. During the... Um, inauguration last week at the moment that the oath of office was being given I closed the door um, to my own office and um, turned off any sound um, and um, and I started printing out the images that you see around you in the room they were put up um, as decoration for the resistance unball that we had that evening uh, but there was something about that moment. I needed to look up heroes. I needed to see the faces and learn the stories of people who had gone before. People who had been through hard things and made it. I needed to know in that moment that I wasn't alone. And we've left those images up for two Sundays now because I still need to look at those faces, need to see them surround me. This platform, um, which was chosen many weeks ago, is about the idea of heroes, about the heroes who are among us, the heroes who come before us, and how to pave the way for heroes who will come after us. And I want to share a little bit about some, uh, just a few of the faces that surround us and then think a little bit together about why we need heroes, about what that means for us in this time. Many of the faces that you see up here you may recognize. I tried to choose some iconic images and some of them you may not know and I encourage you to to do your own Googling and check out Wikipedia and find out. There are three that I wanted to talk to you about, three who are not necessarily the first names that some of you may know, although I am sure that there are folks in this room who know more than I about all three of them. On the doors behind you are two images, the first of which has become truly an iconic image, and then the second taken of the same two folks um, uh, many years later. Um, and, and I often find when uh, I look at this image with others that we know the white woman in the image. People know that it's Gloria Steinem, but not everybody knows the African-American woman in that image. And I want to tell you a little bit about Dorothy Pittman Hughes. Dorothy Pittman Hughes was a, um, and, I, and I'll source that these are, um, my source is Wikipedia. Um, I have no shame. I think it's uh, actually a good uh, resource, um, partly because I think it comes from uh, the people and is only occasionally um, wrong. <laughs> Dorothy Pittman Hughes, um, uh, a feminist and child welfare uh, advocate, um, an activist, public speaker, and author, and small business owner. Um, she was the mother of three daughters. She um, was one of the co-founders of Ms. Magazine in 1972, one reason why she's pictured with Gloria Steinem here. She also organized the first shelter for battered women in New York City. 
and co-founded the New York City Agency for Child Development, which is now the New York City Administration for Children's Services. Along with Gloria Steinem and others, she co-founded the Women's Action Alliance in 1971, and the two uh, toured together, speaking about gender, class, and race throughout the 1970s. Dorothy Pittman Hughes was um, known, um, is known for um, her work in childcare uh, as well, starting childcare agencies and working to really increase um, the opportunities for black women in entrepreneurship and small business ownership. She wrote extensively about that topic as well as promoting it through her life. She's also, and I didn't know this, little known fact perhaps, the aunt of the actress Gabourey Sidi Bey. Um, who knew? Kind of cool. Um, uh, and, um, and has been called sort of America's mother um, for the way that she cared for children um, throughout her career and made that a priority both in her individual life running child care centers and also in the policy work that she did really changing um, the face of that in America. Another hero I want to tell you about is Edward Vern Roberts. His picture is right here. Um, he's in a wheelchair, which you can't see in the picture. He's um, right above Sitting Bull um, and has a tube coming out of his mouth. Edward Vern Roberts is seen as the founder of the American uh, Disabilities Movement. He was the first student with severe disabilities to attend the University of California Berkeley, and um, is called the father of the independent living movement in particular. Uh, he began when a high school administrator, while he was in high school, um, threatened to deny his diploma because he hadn't completed driver's ed and physical education. <laughs> uh, he fought that and um, then was eventually admitted to the University of California, Berkeley, which he need to, where he needed to fight to receive the support that he needed. Um, one of the UC Berkeley deans commented, we've tried cripples before and it didn't work. <laughs> However, other administrators supported his um, work coming to Berkeley. Uh, one of the real challenges there was that he was unable to find housing that would be acceptable because he slept with a 800 pound um, iron lung. Um, and so he was given an empty, a room eventually in an empty wing of the university hospital, which he accepted only if they would make the, treat that wing as a dormitory and not as part of the hospital. Uh, eventually, because of his work, it actually became the Cowell Residence Program, which was a space within the university that provided adequate dormitory-style housing for students with severe disabilities. He continued to work while he was at Berkeley, um, creating the Rolling Quads, um, uh, who advocated for um, curb cuts and other things that we now think of as simply part of the urban landscape, but at that time were totally unheard of um, around campus and across America. Um, and then throughout his life served the wider community of activists through the Berkeley Center for Independent Living and, um, and other models of community organizing. And then the third one I want to tell you about is um, a woman that I became familiar with a few years back when our children here in our Sunday school program studied her. That's Emma Tenayuka. And she's right over here on the right. Um, 
uh, in front of a jail cell. She's in the lower part, young Latina woman there that you can see on the side. Emma Tenayuka um, is the subject of a great children's book that's um, bilingual. It's in English and Spanish, and it's called No es justo, that's not fair, um, which really appeals directly to that, you know, a child's sense of clarity around what is fair and what is not. Emma Tenayuka was a Mexican-American labor leader, organizer, and educator. Um, she grew up in a large family and was brought as a child to the public square where um, socialists and organizers would speak um, uh, kind of publicly as part of the, the experience in that square. So I think often about our families who bring children along on marches and rallies and who our children might become. Uh, Emma became interested in activism and was a labor activist in high school. Her first arrest came at the age of 16 when she joined a picket line of workers in strike against the Fink Cigar Company. The book that I know most, Noah es Justo, is about Emma Tenayuka's work with pecan shellers uh, organizing a strike and really teaching some of the principles of organizing to um, the pecan shellers who were um, almost entirely women, almost entirely Spanish-speaking, and without um, or felt that they were without power. In fact, they were able to organize and organize for um, higher wages, um, finding that they had rather a lot of power if they stopped working uh, and stopped shelling. She also organized protests over the beating of Mexican migrants by United States Border Police. She was arrested for a second and third time. I'm sure one of those is that picture in front of the jail cell, once with a charge of disturbing the peace during a nonviolent protest, and then for a leadership role in a labor strike in 1938. These people and so many others that surround us are real heroes. People who stepped out at their own risk to make changes in society around them, who saw something wrong, something that was not fair, and tried to make it better. There are stories in our own society of real heroes too, heroes with significant work in the world. Ed Erickson, who was the second leader here serving in the 60s, was um, active in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. In fact, he was one of the folks who um, uh, really changed the direction nationally and expanded conscientious objector status from um, having only religious objections like the Quakers and um, Church of the Brethren, historic peace churches, um, and expanded it to including ethical, um, ethical reasons to, to become a conscientious objector. It was around that time because of the work of this society um, for civil rights and against the war in particular that West was infiltrated by the FBI. Some of you know that story and may have even read um, the documents which we obtained through the Freedom of Information Act a couple of years ago, a number of years ago now. Um, some of it is redacted, but most of the reports say things along the lines of, well, they seem okay here, I guess. <laughs> They do talk about peace a lot. <laughs> I was at a board staff lay leader retreat yesterday, and we were talking about who Wes needed to be in the months and years to come, and talked about the real possibility that we might face infiltration again and the uh, importance of being aware of that possibility. And I would say that the general spirit in the room was, oh, well, that would be good. <laughs> 
to be worthy, right, of infiltration, I look back at that time in Wes's history and I think, well, they were doing something right. They were standing up to be heroes at that time. One of the benefits of living in this moment, (laughs) there's not a lot, (laughs) but one of the benefits is that we are able to see heroes emerging around us all the time. National Park Service. I like them so much more than I thought I did. I mean, I knew I liked them, you know, parks. We all like parks. Heroes among us, you might have seen the meme on Facebook, I loved it, that said, you know, first they came for the scientists, and and the National Park Service said, eh, no, and the rest of us said, oh, I didn't see that coming. The young adult dystopian novels don't mention the park rangers as having a core part of the resistance, but that's cool. The National Park Service emerging as our heroes. A judge in Brooklyn, New York, is on my hero list today. You may know who I mean, the one who issued the stay order late last night on the Trump's ban on Muslim immigrants and refugees. Lawyers actually are on my list of heroes. Poor lawyers, they don't get on people's heroes lists all that much. We have all those jokes about them, you know. But the pictures of lawyers sitting on the floor in airports yesterday, laptops open. I've even heard stories of lawyers who took flights in, got flights so that they could get into the airport behind the security line and meet with their clients who were being barred from meeting with them. Taxi drivers are on my hero list this morning. Taxi drivers who typically do not bring in a high income, who depend on wages they earn day by day. Taxi drivers who forgo, what's the past tense of forgo? Forwent? That's not right. <laughs> who, who, who gave up those wages last night as part of their protest refusing to pick up passengers at airports. We need all kinds of heroes right now. Heroes that we didn't imagine needing. Heroes, people we didn't think could be heroes. I have been thinking a lot this week as well about the many folks at WES and beyond who work for the federal government and for agencies supported by the federal government. I have been thinking about how scary and upsetting it must feel, how they must feel sad and angry and frightened, unsure about what they can say. Caroline Russell, a member of West, told me a story about her father, Fred Russell, and gave me permission to share it with you. I loved it because it it gave me an idea of another kind of way to be a hero while being a civil servant. Here's what Caroline wrote. My father was not one to make a big deal about his job, but rather a proud civil servant who believed in what he did and tried to do it to the best of his ability. In his case, that meant trying to help cities provide sufficient, sensible, low-income housing. His background was in city planning, and he joined HUD to address the problems associated with inner-city poverty. 
He was there from 1969 to 1999. It's a long career in federal government in civil service and one I know many folks here have. And he saw many highs and lows over his 30-year career. <laughs> she says he had some choice comments about some of HUD's leadership under Clinton as well. He worked in HUD's regional office in Atlanta and, um, and the time that she told me about was during the Reagan years. When, um, when Reagan had um, really didn't believe in the work that HUD was doing and so kept appointing folks to head HUD who um, were so incompetent um, and or so dedicated to getting rid of HUD that it was essentially sort of a, a dismantling either by neglect or by, um, by choice, by intent. She wrote, I'm sure he didn't really think of leaving HUD during the Reagan years. He was a career bureaucrat with a family to support and a kid in college. But I asked him years later how he could have tolerated being there under Reagan and, of course, under the appointees that came in. He said something along the lines of he just tried to do what he could to find the least harmful way to dismantle programs that had been effective. He was charged with that dismantling. That was his job at that time. And she told me that people were leaving the agency left and right because they couldn't stay, and that may be a heroic thing to do too, but that Fred Russell chose a kind of heroism that involved staying and dismantling in the least harmful way possible. He thought, she wrote, there were different ways to approach undoing some of these efforts, and he did what he could to lessen the negative impact on the people he thought HUD should be helping. We need all kinds of heroes. And we need to see them and notice them as they make themselves known. Now, as I was thinking about this and thinking about the idea of heroes, I kept bumping up against the problem with heroes. You know, the problem with the idea of a singular hero the one out there that will save us, the one that will arrive and make everything better. <laughs> Those of us who are women or people of color are familiar with the idea of, um, you know, the women who have been organizing and working for many years and then suddenly the man comes in and saves the day, you know, how that goes, or the people of color who have been working and organizing only to find that when the white person shows up, suddenly everybody says, oh, look, he's going to... He's going to fix it for us. There are problems with the savior concept, and even aside from those problems of systemic racism and sexism, heterosexism that we face throughout our lives, even the idea of an individual savior or a hero is part of a sort of individualistic viewpoint so common in Western culture that can sometimes work to our detriment, to the detriment of the the work we want to see, the heroism that needs to happen. It is an idea entrenched in our imaginations, in our novels, our stories, our myths, our religious ideologies. Those stories, the fictional ones, are important. Among the real life heroes around you, you'll see plenty of fictional ones as well. I do know Lisa Simpson is not a real person, um, but she was a rabble rouser, right? 
I found I needed not just real heroes, not just names I knew and names I hoped to, to learn, but also the heroes of our stories. The way that those stories kind of call to you, I don't know about you, but I have been thinking about the Harry Potter universe recently a lot, wondering if we're in the part of the story where Dolores Umbridge is at Hogwarts issuing executive orders, wait, I mean educational decrees, or if we are in the part of the story where Dumbledore is gone and we're trying to figure out how to go forward on our own, or if we're in the part of the story where Harry has started Dumbledore's army, where the Order of the Phoenix is going strong and all hands are on deck. It's that one, I think, that part of the story. And what I know about that story, although it puts forward a hero, although Harry Potter is the center and the title figure, is that it's a story about a band of heroes. And that we need not just Harry Potter, but Hermione, too. Hermione, who without without whom Harry Potter would have, I think, died in the first book and then died every single book since then, right? We know that. We need Hermione and we need Ron. We need Neville Longbottom, one of my favorite heroes in the Harry Potter universe, who messes up and can't get it right, who has dubious talents and is terrible with a wand but who is loyal and true, who defends his friends. We need Mrs. Weasley. She was one of my favorite pictures, actually. There she is. I like how she looks. You know, I, when I was a, a child, I, um, I really associated with, um, with Hermione when I was an a, a adolescent and a young adult. And now, as I get older, I realize I'm really Mrs. Weasley. I've turned into that, right? I'm like the suburban mom, you know. I drive a station wagon. I try to get my kids off to school in the morning with a minimum of fuss. But boy, don't cross her, Mrs. Weasley. She's ready to take on the forces of evil with the best of them. We need all of those people in the Harry Potter universe, and we need all of those people now, all the heroes among us, the ones expected and unexpected. We need heroes that emerge out of and with work in their communities, heroes dedicated to collective liberation. I have found it challenging recently to try to figure out which um, which rally to go to, <laughs> you know, I could spend my life at rallies. I should just camp out maybe in front of the White House. It's been done before. Um, it does turn out my family would like to see me occasionally, I think. Um, and perhaps you have had that problem too. You know, the call will come out, be at the White House in an hour or tomorrow at one or the next night at five. And I've been trying to remind myself that it's not a sprint that we're in, but a marathon. You know, that we need to care for ourselves so that we can make it through. Last night, I was talking with Karen Reddy, um, and she said, you know, I think really it's a relay race. And I loved that metaphor so much. It's a relay race we're in. 
where we need to hand the baton off sometimes to the next hero so we can catch our breath and get ready, because it will surely come back to us. Life is like that in general, I think, a relay race. Just raising a family can feel like a relay race or making it through a day, your normal work day. The world is a relay race and we need each other to win it. It will take all of us doing some big, extraordinary things. I loved the reading that I started with this morning from Henry Newman who talked about the untapped depths of courage, of heroism within each of us. There's another poem that has spoken to me about this from Danny Brick, and I'll warn you that it's not safe for work, sort of like the poem that I shared last week, which was also not safe for work, so it should be that these days we just have a blanket warning when you come in at West, might be not safe for work, be aware. I find this poem convicting personally, and I, I invite you to settle in and hear it. I know, I know, if you could go back, you would walk with Jesus, you would march with King, maybe assassinate Hitler, at least hide Jews in your basement. It would all be clear to you, but people then, just like you, were baffled, had bills to pay, and children they didn't understand, and they too were so desperate for normalcy they made anything normal, even turning everything inside out, even killing and killing, and it's easy for turning the other cheek to be looking the other way, for walking to be talking, and they hid in their houses and watched it on television when they had television and wrung their hands or didn't, and your hands are just like theirs, lined, permeable, small, and you would follow Caesar and quote McCarthy and Hoover, and you would want to make Germany great again because you're afraid and your parents are sick and your job pays shit and where's your dignity? Just a little dignity and those kids sitting down in the highway and chanting themselves to buildings, what's their fucking problem? And that kid, that's King. And this is Selma and Berlin and Jerusalem. And now is when you need to be brave. Now is when we need you to go back and forget everything you know and give up the things you're chained to and make it look so easy in your grandkids' history books. They should still have them, Kinahora. Now is when it will all be clear to them. I read that poem and I feel convicted and I feel hopeful. The thing that keeps me going is seeing so many people unexpectedly rising to this moment. It's what gives me hope to see the thousands of people that did join the call to be at the White House after the executive order on the Dakota Pipeline came out last week. With about four hours notice, they were there. Signs in hand, I don't know if they kept poster board in their office or what. <laughs> to see the thousands of people at airports across the country yesterday, lawyers with their laptops open, taxi drivers refusing fares. America 
is rising up and the heroes walk among us every day now. The heroes are us every day and in every way, in ways unexpected and sometimes unseen. For us in ethical culture, a hero not, need not be the single savior who comes forward to change the world alone. In fact, it almost never is. In ethical culture, a hero might be quite quiet. Someone, I think, who restores your faith in human goodness. That's a hero to me. And the good news about that is any of us can be it.